Well, how about that song service, huh? The old timers used to say, if you can't preach after that, then your wood's wet. So we'll see how, the, how that goes. Take your Bibles and go with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Actually, you probably could go to chapter 11 and back up a couple of verses. might be easier for you to find this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. About this time, responsibility so that I could catch an afternoon plane to go to the Dallas-Fort Worth area for the annual meeting of the Baptist General Convention of Texas. And that is uh, the statewide group that we're, we, it's just a three-day business meeting with a little bit of worship in between. And uh, so I jumped on that plane and headed out. And as I got there and registered in, it was held at the Arlington Convention Center. And uh, so what that means is it's in the entertainment district of Arlington. So the convention center and the Sheraton is right there. And adjacent to that is Six Flags Over Texas. And adjacent to that whole area is, uh, are two different stadiums. One's a baseball stadium where the Texas Rangers typically lose. And then there's the all <laughs> Sorry, did my Astros fan fall out of my mouth there? Sorry. Um, and then there's also this little stadium that is uh, right across from the Rangers baseball stadium. And it is known as the AT&T Stadium or as some of you would prefer to call it, Jerry's World. Where the Dallas Cowboys show up for football games this time of the year. Well, the convention was in the Arlington Convention Center, and they purposely laid out the schedule with big blocks of time. They build it as an opportunity for a lot of the uh, pastors and messengers from around the state, especially from small communities, to be able to go to the convention and then also do some things as a family during this summertime vacation season. And uh, I'm way past Six Flags, and so my son met me up there. He's a youth minister at a church down in South Texas, and so he and I met up and spent a few days together going to his first convention. But on Monday afternoon, we had about a four-hour block where they didn't have anything scheduled for us. And so I, I pulled him aside and I said, what, you want to you go over to AT&T Stadium and take the tour? And his eyes lit up because I trained him well. And uh, so we decided we would go over and, sp- <laughs> and spend an hour and a half in the guided tour of AT&T Stadium. Anybody ever done that before? It's, uh, if you're a Cowboys fan, it's probably something you ought to do. You'll need to save up for a year or two to be able to afford it. But um, it was an amazing experience. And I'd driven past it before and flown over it. And, uh, you know, stadium's a stadium, or at least so I thought. But, you know, once we got over there, I could view seats, for instance. A number of things like that, and I was taking it all in going, okay. At the end of the day, I thought, okay, this is a stadium. And it's all nice and all that, but, you know, what, what is... I mean, what kind of stadium can you get for a billion dollars after all? But what really struck me and stays with me is their ongoing commitment to make it better. Typically, from one year to the next, 
the Dallas Cowboy organization and the Jones family that owns that, and of course AT&T has the naming rights to it. But typically on a year-to-year basis, they spend several and maybe tens of millions of dollars making upgrades to that edifice, edifice to entertainment, and they do that every year. It's not enough. They didn't settle back after spending a billion dollars 10 years ago and say, okay, we got what we were after. They continue to look at ways to improve that. They told us that there are 4,000 video monitors in that facility, and they add more every year because they don't want a fan to be anywhere in the building without being able to look somewhere and see a screen that has the game going. They made adjustments to the restrooms because they made it 60-40. 60% were for women 40% for men, but they figured out that that wasn't enough for the women. And so they changed it where some of those men's restrooms are converted into women. So now it's (laughs) 80-20. Because they don't want anybody to have to wait in line more than five minutes for anything. Now, I would suggest to you that that may well be one of those major statements about American sensitivities to entertainment. Everything that happens in that building is geared towards entertainment. And yet that group of owners has decided that they will continually put money into it and innovate as necessary because they want to always make it better, a better customer experience, a better customer satisfaction rating for them. It is one of those things that they do all the time. I would suggest to you that if it's that important in an entertainment context, then the Church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century should adopt a mentality that says we will always be working to improve the experience when God's people gather together. I've entitled this message Under Construction because of what I really want us to latch into. And I'm going to build off of a lot of what was done in music service today. Man, I love coming to church here. I just have to tell you that. Uh, I'm going to build off of a lot of that in this. And Elvin and I didn't compare notes ahead of time, but the Holy Spirit apparently had something for us to get with this today because the reality is that when we come together as God's people, we ought to do the best that we possibly can. It's part of what worship is. So we're always not really like the Jones family and that football stadium, but more like the church of Jesus Christ are always working to make this experience, make every part of our lives as followers of Jesus Christ better. We are continually under construction. So in this passage, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in the last couple of verses, but let me, let me back you up before I read that one verse particularly, and then I'll add a couple later. But let let me make sure that we understand what Paul is doing here. And we spent a lot of time in the book of 1 Corinthians over the last four months or so. And part of what we have seen in that, and you've heard me say many times, is that the Corinthian house churches, this this, uh, network of churches in first century Corinth, were really unhealthy in a lot of different ways. They were allowing the culture in which they were living to seep into the church at a point where the, the mentality that they had inside was not much different than the mentality that was outside. 
That mentality that said we are socially in competition with one another. I want more recognition. I want more status. I want more than you. And so those Corinthian Christians were making a mockery of who they were and their calling to be salt and light in a, in a pagan society. And so Paul writes, and he writes this series of admonitions, this series of teachings, this series of challenges to them that essentially says to them, you're getting it wrong and it's killing your witness. So here are some things that you should put in place. In verse, or chapter 8, he begins to address a single issue that was a real problem for them. They were in a pagan society. And so part of their pagan cultural ritual was they would have these pagan festivals and pagan sacrifices. And then the meat that was used in those pagan sacrifices often was either sold or handed out to the people who were part of that, and then it was used to eat. And so some of those Christians had begun that practice and just kind of pulled that over. And so it was causing problems within the church because one set of people said, no, you can't eat the meat that's been sacrificed to idols because that becomes and makes you a willing participant in that pagan sacrifice. And others were saying, no, we have freedom in Jesus Christ, and so that's not true. And so they bring this, and it becomes this point of contention in the church. So in chapter 8, Paul starts addressing that problem. And then in chapter 10, we get to the end of his whole discussion. And I'm not going to try to wrap all of that up and give you all the details of it. I'm just going to say it this way. By the time we get to chapter 10, in the last few verses, Paul is nailing his point down before he moves on to another issue. Here's what his conclusion was. His conclusion to those Christians there regarding eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols is it's okay to do that. But if it causes one of your weaker, more immature brothers to stumble, then don't. You have the freedom to do it, but you don't have the freedom to intentionally harm a brother in Christ. And so Paul, he's not going to let them off the hook. Just because somebody's weaker and they can't see it, he doesn't say, therefore, nobody should do it. He doesn't say that. He says, you have the freedom to do it, but just be sensitive. Let me put it in terms of our guidelines that we've been talking about as we seek to create a culture that is conducive to a growing church. We would say what he just said this way, people matter. So don't use the freedom that you have in Christ to hurt other people. That's the essence of Paul's argument in chapter 8 through 10. Now, there's a controlling principle, though, this is the part that Paul says essentially drives the whole thing. And we are, we are now in verse 31 where he says this, the final paragraph of his conclusion. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's the controlling principle. That's the driving truth. That's the part that Paul holds out, and he says to them, and by extension, he says to us, in everything that you do, make sure that your goal is to glorify God. 
Well, we probably need to dig on that just a little bit. It seems to be pretty self-evident what he's saying, but I think there's some things in there for us to get a hold of. So let's just dig in for just a few minutes here before we go eat. Now, we're not, that doesn't mean immediately, okay? So if your stomach heard eat and starts turning over, just tell it to settle down. It'll be another 30 minutes. No, not just. Let's think about the implications. Whatever you do, he says, do all to the glory of God. The implications for a church that is constantly under construction as we seek to make it better, it being any element of church life or even your own individual life. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, let me just suggest to you that what I'm going to put out here is a lot like Interstate 10 in El Paso, Texas. (laughs) Been caught in traffic jams any lately? It's always an adventure. I love coming to work from the west side, coming down the interstate and watching the people around me as they seem shocked that we're crawling at snail's pace. It's just everyday life. And part of that is because we are always working to make it better. That interstate system needs to carry a lot of traffic and a lot of commerce, and it needs to be where it gets us where we need to go in the best kind of possible times, and so they're always working on it. That's really the picture that we're pushing today. The the guiding principle in this particular guideline for us is, as a church and as individuals, we always work to make it better. We are always under construction. I'll flesh that out for you in just a moment. But let's come back to what Paul says here and get a few things on the table. First of all, this is not hyperbole. Paul is not coming to the end of his discussion and just throwing up this outlandish kind of statement in order to make a minor point. When he says, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God, he is drilling down on that guiding principle in their everyday relationships with one another. It has to do with eating meat sacrificed to idols. But it's a deeper principle. It's a more powerful point of reference. That's the application that don't eat meat if it offends your brother. The guiding principle that drives that application is that we in our individual lives, in our corporate community life, ought to make sure that everything we do brings glory and honor to Jesus Christ. Sounds easy, right? Well, no, I'm with you. It doesn't sound easy. I'm glad nobody said amen to that. Let's look a little bit and let's see why this is a true statement. The true statement is that everything we do, everything in our lives should bring glory to God. Here's why. Keep your place here, but go with me back into the Old Testament to the book of Isaiah chapter 6. Most of you, maybe all of you, will recognize this passage of Scripture. I'm going to give you one out of Isaiah, and I'm going to give you one out of the book of Revelation. And both of these come from either side side of the gospel narratives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so we go either direction, and we find this statement, this picture, if you will, about who God is, who Jesus Christ is when we get to Revelation. Here's what we find, Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. 
And one called to another. By the way, are you listening? Are you getting the, the vocal, verbal picture of the throne room in heaven scene? And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. The picture in the throne room of heaven that Isaiah paints for us is one that emphasizes, it drives home, and it just underscores in every possible way the separation between God and us. The holiness of God is marked by the sinfulness of his prophet. And we all before a holy God and say, holy, holy, holy. We spent a little time in here this morning being reminded of the need that we have to worship, of the calling of the place, of the, of the necessity that we all come and we begin with a point of reference that understands that God is God and we are not. Paul would pick up that theme as a point of reference in saying, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. Let's jump over to the book of Revelation, the first chapter. In the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 1, and I'll begin reading verse 12 momentarily. I'll give you a chance to get there. But Revelation gets a, a lot of play in our world, but not a whole lot of real good, solid exegesis. And so there are many things that people who go to the book of Revelation love to go and try to figure out. And most of the time, they skip over the things that are easy to figure out that call us to task in the way we live our lives. And in this first chapter of Revelation, as John is recounting for us that first part of the revelation that he received, we find this description of Jesus Christ. Revelation 1, beginning in verse 12, it says, And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Imagine that picture. And then John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Whether it's Isaiah or John, we find these pictures of God himself, of Jesus Christ 
as he really is, it drives us to worship. It drives those pictures, drive us to fall on our knees before him, acknowledging that we are not God, that we need him, that we are sinful and separated, and that causes us to celebrate and to worship when we understand that Jesus Christ has the keys to death and Hades, and he gives life because of what he did for us on the cross. Of course we worship. How could we not worship? when we understand that picture and the reality that those two pictures paint for us, how could we not worship? Well, actually, we find a lot of ways not to worship. (laughs) You see, one of the things that I I get concerned about is, is that it's easy for us as Christians to give lip service to those pictures and those words but then live our lives without really worrying too much about making sure that we glorify him in all that we do. You see, the reality is if if Jesus is really who he says he is, let me just pause and make sure you understand. He really is who he says he is. So when I say if he is, uh, that's really just my technique to try to get you to, to zero in with me. Of course he is who he says he is. But because he is, then that demands something from us. That doesn't demand something from us. That demands everything from us. And so when we come as a body, as a gathered body, we come recognizing that all that we do ought to glorify him. Which means the guideline for us should be that we're always under construction. We're always in the process of making it better. What we do may be wonderful. It may be better than anybody else does it, but we should create an environment of excellence here, not because we want to be seen, not because we intend to do guided tours of our church like the AT&T Stadium staff does. We do the best. We create an an environment of excellence because he deserves that. In all that we do, we seek to glorify him. It has implications on the stuff that you eat and the way you handle people, but the driving force in our everyday lives, individually and as a community of faith, is that all that we do, we do to glorify him. We make it better. And I'm out of time and halfway out of notes. <laughs> so let me drop this on you. We have a lot of educators in our church. Uh, Teresa's mother was an educator. My mother was an educator. And I've known a lot of teachers and administrators in school systems through the years. And one of the things I always like to do <laughs> is uh, listen to teachers talk about the gifts that their kids bring them. And uh, some of the stuff that I've seen in my mom's house, you know, we're working with them in a number of different ways. And so she, at one point, she started kind of sifting through some of the stuff. She had in one room, she had a lot of these gifts that kids had given her through the years. And I, frankly, I just, you know, I'm going to be real human with you here. I, I walked in and looked at some of that garbage and I thought, why in the world is she? <laughs> at first I thought, why would she keep that? And then I, I wised up and I thought, why would somebody give that as a gift? 
The reason she kept it is because it had some kind of sentimental value, but there's no other kind of value attached to some of that garbage. And in, all right, so let me use that for a second with you. Would you give one of those kind of teacher gifts to your most important person in your life? You know, mom has these little statuettes or little little wooden cutout of an apple. If, if guys, if your wife, hear me carefully now, don't get in trouble. If your wife has a birthday and you decide you're going to take one of those little wooden cutout painted apples and give it to her, and that's the only gift you give her, you better buckle up because it's the business picking up with you right now. Let's turn that just a little bit and ask ourselves for this one who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who is pictured for us or in Revelation 1, does he deserve some trinket or does he deserve the best that we have? You see, the proper response when we recognize who Jesus is, is make it better. Everything that we do is a gift to him based on our willingness to let him be God. So as a church, everything we have to do, everything we do has to be the best that we can. We need to be making it better all the time. My dad was in seminary and he came back telling the story of one of his preaching classes. Now, some of you have been to seminary and you've been through preaching class and the torment that that is for a student. Uh, in this particular class, they did what every preaching class does as far as I know, and that is an assignment was given that each one of those preacher boy students had to develop a sermon. They were given a text and they had to go develop it, research it, build a sermon and then come into class and preach the sermon in front of the other preacher boy students and the professor. It is a rather intimidating task. And this one guy came in one day, and my dad said, by all accounts, it was the most unprepared and poorly delivered sermon that he had ever heard. And apparently other people in the class thought the same thing because they... Now, by the way, my dad and Dr. Nickel were at seminary at the same time, so that, that, it wasn't Dr. Nickel, I can just tell you that, okay? <laughs> so, uh, so apparently the rest of the class thought it was just really horrible. They couldn't wait for it to get over, like some of you right now probably. And, uh, and the professor, when it was all said and done, the professor was dumbfounded. My dad said he looked at him, and the professor just sitting in the back of the room just kind of, you know, what do you say to that? And so finally the professor, as the guy went and sat down, the professor made his way up to the podium in the classroom there, and he said, so uh, you satisfied with that? <laughs> the rest of the class just went silent. And the guy said this, it'll do. And wisely the professor responded, it'll do what? I wonder if it's possible that any of us, or even all of us gathered here, might occasionally slip into an, a mentality in our Christian lives 
that if God were to say, are you satisfied with that, we would say, well, it'll do. He deserves nothing other than our best. It is a point of worship. It is the reflection of a people who seek to glorify him in all ways. I don't have time to get to it, but the last couple of verses in that chapter, Paul talks about himself and his own attempt in the lives of those people to live in such a way that it does not harm his witness. You see, part of what happens is when we get our glorifying God right and when we get our worship right, it becomes an evangelistic tool with people who are hungry for life. So one of those guidelines for us as a church is, it's not new, it's just part of what we do, is we want to make it better. The product, every time you come to church, we want to make it better for you, for people. Dr. Nickel and his crew that works the front doors, as a regular point of reference, when someone comes in, they want to make sure that that person is acknowledged. That's good. We always want to make that better. When this music group gets up here and does what they've done for us today, you can be sure that it's because their director, Elvin, said somewhere in a series of meetings, that's not good enough, let's get better. You as a Sunday school teacher, you as a committee member, you as a Christian who walks out of here into a world desperately needing Jesus Christ, make it better. Create an atmosphere of excellence as a point of worship. Let's pray. And as we pray, let me just encourage you to personalize this message. Are you doing your best for the master? There is an old hymn that says, Hear ye the master's call. Give me thy best. For be it great or small, that is his test. Thy talents may be few, and these may be uh, small, but unto him is due our best, our all. Father, use this time to convict us where necessary, to comfort us where needed, to draw us into a commitment that is based on your holiness, and that is drawn from our own worship. We would seek to honor you in all ways, at all times, and make it better. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.